Hello and welcome to the second instalment of uh, that federal match hosted by myself, uh, Jack Kessler, and my colleague uh, and erstwhile tennis coach, Lisa Gershon. Lisa, thank you for, for coming back for a second time. Jack, it's, it's an absolute pleasure. Yeah, second one. Yeah, it's like the difficult, the difficult second album, but for a podcast, you know, we've raised the expectations, but can we surprise again? I think we can. I definitely think we can. We've chosen a great match. Lisa, yeah. what match have we chosen? Well, we've chosen a match, we're going back, I think, uh, a year further back. We're going back to 2004, Federer against Davidenko in Miami. And that's the match we've chosen for today's second podcast. Why have we chosen that? Well, it's a brilliant match. Um, <laughs> uh, it's a fantastic match. I've enjoyed watching the highlights. I have to say, it's just the highlights we've managed to see. It's going back a while. Um, Federer had played uh, Davidenko once before, back in Milan in January 2002, um, and he beat him in three sets. Um, but this match has everything. It's got, <laughs> got everything we want to talk about. Um, where to begin, Jack? I mean, I mean, you mentioned that you mentioned the two thousand two match. Just looking at at their record, which um, theoretically we're meant to be speaking about after we talk about the match, the match. But it, it's it's the kind of rivalry that I can really get into with Federer because it produces on the whole some really great matches, but it's also 19 to two in favor of Federer. That's my kind of right. I wasn't here for the Djokovic or Nadal. I wanted the Roddick rivalry, the Safin rivalry, which is, you know, a little bit of jeopardy. Obviously you need to keep the punters guessing a little bit, but ultimately the good guy should win. Yeah. 19 to two is a nice stat. If your name is Roger Federer, but the match we chose, why 2004? Because Federer plays the power game. Federer hits his forehand down the line, cross court. He serves on a sixpence. He sneaks into the net and hits volleys um, that look like Edberg, which is funny considering Edberg didn't really come onto the scene and coach Federer until 2013. And it's efficient and it's beautiful. The movement's interesting because he runs around the court. He looks taller somehow. And he, he takes these enormous steps. He's not doing these little pirouettes. He's, he's lunging from left to right, covering, um, covering the court. And, and I've been watching a lot of sort of latter-day Federer more recently. And the movement's still beautiful, but it, it seems like quite a different type of movement back then. I think, I think that I was watching the match thinking he, he does look bigger. Now, maybe that's just a slightly baggier shirt. Look, we could come on to that later. Um, but he's, he's statuesque and he does take big strides. You see a huge amount of big strides, but then you see the pirouettes, the small adjustments to allow him to move seamlessly, you know, balletically. He, he has the ability throughout the match to choose with time to spare. That's one of the things that um, struck me most that his decision-making with the power, with huge speed and some extraordinary rallies, um, looked so straightforward. Davidenko causes him problems. I mean, he, he wins the second set. The third set gets to four all um, before Federer breaks. What is it about Davidenko's game 
all the way back in 2004, which is, you know, official peak Federer territory. And Davidenko is already causing him significant problems on a mid-paced hardcourt. Yeah, Davidenko hits, you know, let's not forget, Davidenko hits a very hard ball, takes time away from Federer. His double-handed backhand is exceptional uh, during the Miami match and in other matches. So he has the ability to take Federer out of position. There was a lot of defence, offence throughout the match. And sometimes, just occasionally, certainly in the second set, Federer looked um, a little casual. Um, He went back behind Davidenko, I'm trying to remember the point, comes in on a volley, plays back behind Davidenko to go back into the, to juice into the forehand side Davidenko and is clean passed. And he does it a few times and doesn't go to the space. Often as a coach, you know, we teach our pupils to go to the, to the space and not go back behind um, their player and make the obvious shot. And if you have to make a couple of volleys, well, then, then so be it. There was a little bit of casualness where he took off some intensity um but then he upped it again and he went down a break didn't he in the third set at the beginning i think he goes down three one in the third and then there's an extraordinary rally a 24 shot rally where federer is side to side these big steps as you said earlier out of position defending staying in the point staying in the point pushing davidenko and davidenko is it looks like a drill and he sees the opening, I think it's a forehand, he hits a deep forehand approach, and instinctively, and that's the bit, the instinctive decision-making moves forward, I think it's a sort of semi-smash forehand overhead put away. Um, and that's why we've chosen, that's one of the reasons we've chosen this match. I've got a few technical questions, so, um, and, and you're really the best person to ask. So on the volley, I mean, mm. Federer always had a very good volley, but it reminds me of how much he's improved it. You know, you know, in sort of 2006 onwards, Federer, and you'd see him making these miracle volleys. Often he would need to against really very strong opposition. Um, he was quite casual on the volley in his younger days. You would often see him hit forehand volleys on top of the net, into the net. Um, and it didn't really matter because he was so far ahead of everyone else that, you know, he'll just win with a service winner in the following point. But he has m- markedly improved his volley since 2004. Yeah. I, I totally agree. I think that, as you said, he was so far ahead that whatever he executed, he could get away with to a certain degree and then ch- choose another shot from his repertoire because his repertoire is endless. Um, the courts were quicker. So, you, you know, interesting early Federer days, more movement towards the net, certainly more serve and volleying. I think that changed through his career. Um, he, his approach shots, his just taking the opponent a bit wider, having a little bit more time. And I think that helped. Yeah, Chris Barker already fabulous volley. Um, his touch volley was always there. There's a backhand volley for anyone who wants to go and watch the match now. Uh, There's a couple of sublime little touch volleys um they're more deft as i say i think he did improve his his volley positioning and the length of the approach shot to get him into a better position was was more thoughtful you know he took a little bit more respect of the opponent rather than coming in on a wing and a prayer sometimes because he could so i think it wasn't it's not just technique of the volley it's choice of when 
to serve and volley and, and sometimes to be a little bit less aggressive immediately and maybe have to make a few more shots. And thinking about the backhand, what struck me was it looks like a different shot. And I'm thinking in particular about the um, the pullback. It just, I can't, and I can't tell the what backswing. it is. The backswing. <laughs> What's a pullback? The backswing. Thank you. Um, That's okay. <laughs> that, it, it looks, it's obviously Federer. Um, ponytail notwithstanding but it, that's not the same backswing he has even the following year How, did you is that something that you've seen as I well think, and, and what changes happened I think there's lots of changes they're very subtle changes through anyone's career based on on the court the temperatures how somebody is feeling whether they're seeing the ball big um the obviously the opponent and the score line and confidence but some of the backhands that we saw in this match are so clean it's quite a long backswing it's quite a big backswing but the bit that I noticed more during this match was the weight transfer onto the front foot absolutely still we've always marveled at Herr Federer's head being still through the swing but the, the weight transfer from the back to the front is is apparent and and worth worth looking at any lay players out there um, who want a bigger backhand and go for it. He hits a, I know there's a backhand pass somewhere, I think it's in the first set. It's as good as you'll see. And he puts the outside leg on, the brake comes on and immediately um, recovery is back there. Um, the slice, we haven't talked about the slice backhand. He mixes up his backhands in this match hugely. Um, Slice backhand returns, quite a few inside out backhand returns on the juice side, very early onto the front foot. Um, I'm not so sure about the backswing being that different as the contact point being really, really crystal clear. But do you remember how his question. serve was in 2002 3? His serve was maybe, and maybe it's only a, a subtle difference, but it seemed like. And this is my lack of sort of technical expertise, but it seems I don't know whether it's more front on or more. It just seems slightly more rigid and less flowing than it became. I think 2004, I, I can't remember who it was who who said that this was Federer's party. It was a coming out party. Federer is relaxed. Um, in throughout the matches I watched into, I wouldn't quite like you. I've watched quite a lot of matches. Uh, it's, a very beautiful action. Um, if we're talking technically, Federer's ball toss where you release the ball to a certain place, his arm actually comes quite a long way round his body. That's something that uh, that's pertinent in that style, not technique though. I think we mustn't get we must get caught up on the difference between somebody's style or something and still having the ball placement on a sixpence. And I think that's the thing about Federer's serve is it may not be the fastest, but the placement and the, the accuracy to build on his first serve. And so often in, in this Davidenko match, it was a serve, it was a kick serve, got the return, moved inside, and there's the forehand. And it was as simple as that for many of the points. So the serve action, you know, remained confident throughout. One of my pet theories is that, 
you know, Federer from sort of 2004, five was a power player. I struggle to think of anyone, obviously, you know, most notably on the forehand side, who hit the ball harder than Federer. And it, it's interesting because you don't think of Roger Federer as being a power player. You think of in the sort of mid 2000s period, you might think of Fernando Gonzalez or James Blake or you know, obviously Safin had power to burn. And the term power player can sort of be a bit of a, um, a not so veiled criticism. On the women's side, you'd hear the criticism, oh, she's just a ball basher. Um, but who wouldn't want to be powerful? Um, and is it just that he seems more powerful here than he was in the latter part of the mid-2000s and, and, and teens? Or is he, is, is he clocking more MPH on the average forehand now than he was a few years later? I th- it looks faster. Uh, you know, maybe I need an eyesight test to go and get my, my spectacles sorted. It is a huge power game. I think because Federer glides around the court, making things look effortless, we almost miss it. It's almost, you almost miss the speed at which he's hitting his forehands and some of his backhands and the movement to get into the into the net. Um, I mean, I don't know. I was watching some of the Federer Agassi and Indian Wells in semi-final, and the power between Agassi and Fed, both standing very close to the baseline, both hitting balls right that were rising, but taking time away constantly. And the ball almost looks like it's on a, a on a string, but the speed of the swing from both Agassi and, and Federer was remarkable. Maybe nowadays, if we're going into the game in current years, um, there is less time to make as big a swing because the ball is coming back that bit quicker. So the swings sometimes are becoming a little more condensed just in order to make sure that the body weight is still going forwards. And that's a game change. Technology, bigger racket heads. You know, where, do we, where do we go, Jack? We could start talking about racket head size and strings, but that's... Uh, that's an ever evolving part of the game. Um, in 2004, I don't know, see, I'm, I'm assuming Federer is still playing with his 90 square inch head racket. Yeah. Um, you know, nowadays they're bigger. That would denote more power. That takes away time from the swing. But, but it happened quite quickly because I think we both agree, you know, Federer's best season on tour is 2006. Um, and, you know, his, his backhand at that, it's probably as much as I've criticized it in the past, it's probably the best <laughs> backhand in the world that year. It's just an astonishingly good shot. Um, but he's actually not really a power, a power player anymore, even at the peak of his peak. And then obviously when you get into years like, I've been watching highlights from 2012, and you know, he, he reaches world number one again, he wins Wimbledon, but he's doing it by sort of... Um, rushing around he's going he's going around his opponents he's no longer going through his opponents even sort of the non top 10 players he's still having to be really smart and make constantly good decisions um in order in order to beat them i think in 2012 he played um milos raonic at least twice maybe three times and each time won seven six in the third um which, which I think speaks to how well Ryanich was playing that year, but also that Federer is having to find different ways to win later on in his career. Whereas, 
in 2006, all you have to do is just be the best anyone's ever played tennis up to that point. And in 2004, you're playing against David Denko, who I think is one of the first to come up of that generation to challenge Federer, who had a really good double hand. I mean, obviously Safin did, but I would, I would almost argue Safin's a generation ahead of Federer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you're talking pre-Djokovic, Murray, um, um, but also sort of post the sort of Arno Clement, Thomas Johansson type, who both had solid double-handers, but really had no business reaching the finals of or, or even winning the Australian Open. Yeah, Jack, it's, it's a really interesting point about what causes somebody to make changes. And Federer's had to make many changes through a very long career. Um, double-handers versus single-handers. You know, there is naturally um, a greater reach with the single, but, but less accuracy when under pressure, under duress. So if that backhand is attacked a little bit more, then Federer's had to come up with ways to turn his defence into offence, which is why his footwork to get round, as you just said, to move the ball around in a different way, because the game has evolved. The way in which players hold the racket, the different styles of grips on the double-hander, um, all of them will alter the sort of balls that Federer's had to evolve and grow to hit against. So, you know, Djokovic's double-handed backhand, the angles of it, Davidenko's backhand is very well disguised. He's often open stance, which means that it's more slightly more difficult to read where the contact could be cross-court, it could be down the line. Um, a single-hander is a thing of beauty and possibly other than the Serbia, one of the most difficult shots to play, uh, which is why Federer, as I said before, all his children have been told they're going to have double-handed backhands, not single-handed backhands, because it takes time for that to evolve and then keep evolving as the game evolves. You mentioned um, Agassi. I think, again, it's a type of head-to-head or type of rivalry that Federer fans like because they were often tremendous matches which Federer won. Um, but the biggest difference between, I mean, Agassi and Davidenko, gosh, I hope this isn't um, a terrible thing to say. They have similar game styles. Um, Agassi, obviously, a much better player. Um, I'd say a better returner. Much starters. better returner. Much better returner. Possibly, when, certainly when he was younger, a better serve obviously a much more consistent forehand neither of them can volley um i would like to just add in that it was quite wonderful seeing actually a one-handed backhand at full stretch against federer federer made him hit a ken uh rosewell single-handed backhand which uh you very rarely <laughs> see agassi do side yeah. note agassi has a really weird slice backhand well he wasn't as comfortable with it because he's a double-handed close to the baseline rushes the opponents i mean it, he rushed Federer during that match, toe-to-toe mm. um, -to -toe with him. And I think, again, we forget how, how hard Agassi hit the ball. Okay, side note to the side note. Would you say Andy Murray has the best slice backhand? Andy Murray, of course, and I would suggest all listeners go read my um, uh, interview with him for the uh, Evening Standard, which came out at uh, uh, the beginning of May. Um, but would you say that Murray of the double-handers has the 
best slice backhand? The best slice, the best touch, the best feel, for sure. And I think it should be compulsory to read your article, Jack. <laughs> anyone listening to this podcast definitely has to. I think that's a com- compulsory read. Um, yes, he's got extraordinary touch for somebody with a double-handed backhand. I'm trying to think. I mean, Novak, obviously. But uh, yeah, Agassi, I wouldn't put that in the same category. And, and so... Another one of my sort of tennis obsessions is having players who have these sort of split tennis, not between lefties and righties or people who like volleying or staying back as everyone stays back, but between players whose forehands are better than their backhands and vice versa. And Davidenko um, is in many ways the poster child for the player with a better backhand than forehand, which causes all sorts of problems in a, in a game dominated by the forehand and in particular the inside out forehand. So what, is wrong with Davidenko's forehand because I feel if you gave Davidenko a more technically sound forehand, you not not the most powerful, but you you give him David Ferrer's forehand, which is an excellent forehand, but not but not the I hardest think... hit in the world. How much better is he? But also, can you explain why Davidenko misses forehands? What's technically wrong? He's with not it? comfortable. He's not as comfortable. Every uh, as players, and this applies from juniors who are aged four who are just beginning the game to people who are seasoned, maybe, you know, eight-year-olds. People know their strengths. People know what they naturally do comfortably but without being taught it. There is something people, you know, often say to me as a coach, I want to make my backhand as good as my forehand. Or I rarely, they rarely say I want to make my forehand as good as my backhand. But it's usually I want to make my, my backhand as good as my forehand. And my answer to that is um, there is in, there's inequality in one's strokes. And under pressure, we go back to our strength. We go back to what we feel comfortable with. And Davidenko's natural strength is his backhand. So I think it's harsh to say to make it good. I think it's still a very fine forehand, but it's not his strength shot. And yes, you can alter grips and you can play around with all sorts of things. I mean, we've seen Nadal change grips for his volleys over the years. We've seen all sorts of things that you can evolve. But under pressure, Davidenko's backhand is his strength shot. Andy Roddick's shot is his forehand and his serve, not his backhand. Should uh, also add so that Djokovic is on the way to being the most successful in terms of Grand Slams yeah. men's player of all time. And his backhand is better than his forehand. Yes. Um, even though his forehand is obviously still it's, tremendous. It's almost more equal though. I would say his ability, certainly on return of serves and to bend the ball and to hit off both wings with power and touch um aided hugely by his extraordinary mm-hmm. movement you know and i'm, I'm going to refer to to that article um on murray i did one last time just because i in that i quote um the great uh journalist steve tigner who i think about more than 10 years ago now had had a, had a great line on murray which was that you know his entire game is effectively a beautiful edifice to mask the fact that he lacks a point ending forehand and once you internalize that description everything makes sense um building on you know you serve and you build on your strength shots and being able to move around and hit an inside out forehand or an inside in forehand for those players maybe listening uh that means going back down the line as opposed to going and taking your opponent out and in the federal davidenko match there is a i think it's the third set where federer moves around hits an inside out forehand out wide 
and Davidenko he gets a, he gets his racket on it mm. with two hands, but it's it's he's outside of the court. He's outside the tram lines, and we we saw that in our in our first podcast when um, Federer played pretty much an identical point structure against Suzuki. So it's a massive weapon that. I mean, Federer's inside out forehand is is his little black dress. You know, it, it's never going to go out of fashion. Um, it's never going to let him down, even at moments of peak stress. Uh, in 2004, he's still hitting his forehand down the line and hitting it tremendously well. Another one of my um, theories, and it's not so much a theory because it's it's based in, in fact, if you're as sad as I've been in, um, watching virtually every match he's ever played on, on YouTube highlights. But I think from virtually 2007 onwards, which is, you know, the... Um, dying embers of of peak Federer he stopped hitting the forehand down the line I don't want to say almost entirely Lisa because you're going to accuse me of uh being hyperbolic but he really cuts back on that shot almost entirely and it's he does. it's bizarre because it happens or at least it feels like it happens quite quickly and the forehand down the line is, a, is the sort of shot particularly if you're hit, able to hit it even a little bit inside the baseline where you don't have to hit it perfectly in order to give your opponent a real problem because it's the most direct route. Yes, it's the high part of the net, but you can really push your opponent back even if you don't hit it anywhere near the line or don't time it perfectly. So he hit, as I said, he hit some beautiful forehands down the line in this match and he's knowingly hitting it towards Davidenko's strength. Why is that something he's able to do so well in the spring of 2004 and something he essentially removes that club from his bag within the next four years? I think partly it's a shot that is high risk. If you begin to miss it, you begin to lose confidence as any player, even if you're number one in the world and you're having, you know, a fantastic year. Um, We've talked about speed of balls coming to you, that ability to bend the ball and create that curve on the outside edge of the ball is more difficult down the line it is a more difficult shot um we've seen him in 2004 something to just go the other way jack the ability for him to hit the a depth shot down the line and then follow it with a very short cross-court angle where the ball almost bounces in the service box he did that against Hemlin very successfully that's a shot that begins to change with the same down the line shot leaving Federer's armory for a bit that short angle into the service box out wide is less obvious in those next years and I just wonder whether you know a little bit older a little bit less malleable um or maybe it's just down to confidence and changing how he's going about playing the game of tennis his game of tennis Mm. Maybe we'd better ask Federer. Let's invite him on. Well, invite him on. It's the sort of it's with that with Federer. Sometimes it's an approach shot, and and it's relatively straightforward. But often it was his right. I'm going to end the point now. Shot. Pulling the trigger. It's it's pulling the trigger, and I would imagine if a lay person watching tennis seeing that shot would think, why would you not hit that shot? every point or the second shot of every single rally and the answer you and I and others who watch the game more would be because it's actually really difficult <laughs> um it's, it's but, a but, very high risk yeah 
glamorous, you know, as you say, show-stopping. This is the moment, pull the trigger, and it's death or glory. And if you have too many that don't quite make it, um, you stop playing it. Where we, we asked the same question last episode about Federer in January 2005. Where is Federer and where is tennis, and specifically men's tennis, in the spring of 2004? So um, okay. there is no there is no such thing as Rafael Nadal um during this match there very quickly will be in the next round because he loses to to Rafa in straight set and obviously lots of people were very excited about this kid called um Nadal in in 2004 but and and I think he reached the third round of Wimbledon in 2003 um and I'm going to show off because I'm pretty sure he lost to um Srishapan um but for all intents and purposes there's no Nadal there's certainly no Djokovic or Murray um is yeah, he but... and Federer's only won two Grand Slams at this point? Um, yes. So yeah, he was twenty-two in two thousand and four, and he was world number one. I mean, I think that's just worth stating. You know, he'd won the Australian Open, hadn't he beaten Safin, and he went on to take uh, the U.S. Open, beating Andy Roddick, and then he took so he took the U.S. Open in two thousand and four, beating Hewitt. He went on a winning streak that was unprecedented but then the spring um, of 2004 no that, that that doesn't surprise me at all but then the spring of 2004 we have much less information about Federer than we do in January 2005 because his, his 2003 was impressive he wins Wimbledon finishes world number two wins the um, tennis masters cup beats Agassi twice in that tournament and then he wins the next major of of, of, of the following year um, but he's I a lot we're, was... we're a lot less sure about him even at this everyone's very excited but you're not working with much data no I think you're working with what you're seeing which is a complete player at a very young age with extraordinary ability, beauty, charm, power, and decision-making. And obviously off-court, very, very hard work ethic. Um, He served, I remember reading, because again, like you, using my time well in lockdown and COVID, his percentage of serves, first serve holding up, was off the scale, as was his returning. So even then, we're getting a glimmer of what Federer is capable of that he goes on to prove. Um, he saved an extraordinary amount of break points during that spring period. That's that's going to raise your confidence as a player, whether you're one in the world or 100 in the world. And he dominated the tie breaks. You know, he won, I think it was 70% of tie breaks. Um, and I was, was growing in confidence. Every win, every trophy, at 22, you know, you're, you're not um, shackled by expectation. The expectation is to go out and perform well and play well and grow. And that's what he did beautifully. Uh, we touched on it a little bit at the start with the Federen- um, Federenko, with the Federer-Davidenko rivalry. Another, another thing that um, strikes me is that of the... What's 19 pursue? It's 21. Of the 21 times that they played, Davidenko won a set on, or at least a set on nine occasions. Um, and so for, for a pretty lopsided 
um, rivalry. Uh, it speaks to Davidenko's quality. It speaks to the relative closeness of a number of their matches. Um, two in particular spring to mind. You've got the Australian Open, what was it, fourth round, maybe a quarterfinal where Federer uh, wins in four and the last two sets of tie breaks. Although Federer in 2006, Australian Open didn't play particularly well. I think there was he was still sort of... Um, trying to get fit following the ankle issue at the end of 2005. But the other match that screams out is the 2007 French Open semi-final, um, where Federer wins in straight sets. But I feel I, feel I can get the, um, the score up here. Yeah, he wins 7-5, 7-6, 7-6. Um, in order so he could have the pleasure of losing once again to Nadal in the final. Um, <laughs> And and maybe I mean on the on the one hand it does speak to Davidenko's obvious talent, but it also is a reflection of I don't know whether you, whether you want to call it mental fragility, um, but Davidenko should beat Federer should have beaten Federer more than twice in his career. You think of the 2010 Australian Open, one of the more bizarre matches where Davidenko is significantly up was it i think he may, might have been a set and a breakup i don't think he ever got to two sets to one up um but it was sort of i mean you're, you're long past the peak of both players at that point but um throughout their rivalries the rivalry davidenko maybe maybe those nine occasions he wins a set is actually testament to his underachieving against federer because if you're good enough to win a set and yet you're constantly i mean roddick was never good enough to beat federer on a consistent basis but davidenko was wasn't he well obviously not <laughs> <laughs> obviously not i mean you know he i think i think he what he won uh a set at the atp finals 2009 he takes uh the middle set I think it's it's he beats Feather in two thousand and nine in in London. That was one of the ones he he beat him in, and then absolutely spanks him in um, Doha Doha a couple of months later. Yeah, why did he not? Why was he not able to do that more often? Um, Federer had the ability, has the ability, and had the ability to outplay him. That helps when he's got the tools to outplay him. one of the things I was laughing at, I have to share this with you, Jack, um, watching the Miami, watching the match, how how much Davidenko holds his breath. I've always worried about that, which, you know, holding your breath when you're trying to exert power and pressure, you you, you, you hear the sounds of the, the ball being struck. And then a second later, there's a huh sound. And I've often wondered whether that, you know, he's known as the Iron Man, I think. I often wonder whether that might have held him back a bit. That, that ability to stay um, with other players, you holding your breath, you try going for a run and holding your breath and doing something really constantly for hours and hours and hours and not breathing as well as you can. So when, when are you meant to inhale and when are you meant to exhale? Well, you inhale just before you make the, uh, the shot making. So you'll be taking your back to it. And as you're hitting, whoosh get go um, and if you really want to test this out on a court uh, and you're having a knock up with somebody or warm up go and do it and see if you can hear the exhalation of your um, opponent from when the ball has landed on your side of the net that's and, how long it could be for and is that why some players are grunting is because they are exaggerating the breathing 
they're exaggerating it and more exertion uh, you know you're going to make a noise your, your diaphragm your movement will make a noise it's also I I don't know whether it's coached or not um, I'm going to beat the fifth on that one but it can can certainly sound you know more aggressive more intimidating you know noise movement sounds um, they all add factors in to to certainly appear more threatening but Davidenko holds his breath throughout the whole match in this Miami match and I always wonder if he looks exhausted from that as much as the physical exertion so Federer and Davidenko are virtually the same age why does Davidenko it's unfair to call it a flash in the pan because there is a there is a four or five year period where he is clearly outside of the top four, although he was his his peak may have been well, he played a lot before there was a top four. But why does he I mean he fought, he, he tails off really very quickly um and doesn't doesn't really come back. And I know he had I feel I feel like he had a bad wrist injury, uh, and I feel that I should have Look that up beforehand, but is it just injury? Is it the fact that he played every single week, even before Grand Slam? I think the the week in week out constant takes a toll. Um, he's not the, the biggest guy. We talked about the size, the stature. His speed is phenomenal. His power is phenomenal. That's going to take its toll. If you then add in, uh, and this this might sound harsh, and it's not meant to be, a lack. Of, the, of a huge weapon to endpoints and save and conserve energy, you know, that again is going to make winning week in, week out more difficult. I mean, he retired, it's in 2013, 2014. Correct me if I'm wrong. Jack. Something like that. Um, but really was on a sort of downhill streak before that. Um, we, we're getting back to, I think, the word talent, natural ability versus incredible work ethic and and some talent and and some great choice making ability um and there are people the odd few who have more of that than others and it's not fair you know federer is is one of them but during that four or five year period his consistency was pretty remarkable and looking at um in between 2005 and um, 2011 other than when they played each other at the round robin at the um, world tour finals which which doesn't really count they never met before a quarter final which inevitably shows if better is always in, ranked in the top four at that time it shows how highly ranked davidenko was too these were always big matches they were normally semi-finals um of tournaments um and david and if they are semi-finals i mean davidenko i think he reached a high of world number three, I want to yeah, say, yeah. but for lots of that he period, did. he wasn't in the top four. And so, if he's meeting meeting Feather in the semi final, he's probably beaten yeah. whoever was in the top four seed in yeah. order to have the pleasure of of, of losing to Feather. Yeah, I think. Um, that, but that, there's a really long period of time in which he is a an absolute stalwart of the tour, and I'm slightly regretting my. Um, particularly I given that I think I've that... been harsh I think yeah, I've been, I think I've been harsh, harsh too. I think I've been really harsh how can, I, how can we put someone down who's been in the top 10 for most of their career um, it, it, yet you don't think of him as being one of the big 
top top as but he was and he he you know he never won a slam he never reached a final of a slam but that um 2009 world tour finals win there are players i think of players who never won a slam but you, know, you think of elena dementieva who won the olympics or radwanska who won she won something big and i can't remember what it was but obviously wasn't a slam and, and I'm I'm really pleased for him that he won that because it is probably you know it's the fifth biggest tournament and it wasn't a fluke that he won that he, he reached the final in 2008 he wins it in 2009 beating Federer along the way and there was that weird period when he had a really good serve for like a few months and he he, he would was, sometimes it's... switch rackets depending on whether he was serving or receiving but the, I'm, I'm I'm fairly convinced there was a period of a few months when everyone's like hey Davidenko's serve is really good. I was at the final, I have to say, and hey, he was extraordinary. Um, and he took so much time away from his opponents, but it it, it was at a huge work rate. More, it, it always felt more like he was having to work harder to win points. Maybe that's just his style of play. Maybe that's my memory playing tricks on me. But you know, his, his as I say, his work rate was phenomenal, um, and I think we forget. Mm-hmm. There is a Ferrer-like quality to him. Yeah. I mentioned Ferrer Delicious. earlier, where you're just working so side hard side constantly. Side to side yeah. What do we make of the look? So we, oh. have, we have actual <laughs> ponytail yeah. action. We've got that white shirt with the with the red stripe that's higher on the front than it is at the back which it really is. bothers me i like it when it's, it's symmetrical it, I, i'm I sorry i liked it i quite i thought it was a little quirky it was a bit more it wasn't quite a stayed can we also talk about if we're getting into this um obviously the swiss color i liked it being red and white it's very crisp and davidenko was also wearing red and white just different setup of his red um federer's shoulders can we just talk about federer's shoulders for a minute, they're, they're so wide and broad when he swivels into <laughs> shots, but made made bigger by the very thin red line that runs across. I'm I hope I've got this right and I haven't made this up <laughs> across the top of his shirt. There's a thin red line just to emphasize his frame. And I'd also like to talk about no what... zip though, Jack. No zip, that's fine. No zip. <laughs> We're zip agnostic around here. Um, <laughs> what it what what it looks like on camera particularly when the sun sets and obviously the floodlights turn on but it's not i think part of this is because it's slightly grainy this is pre 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 hd um but i don't know if you ever watch these days sort of um vintage simpsons and anytime you see um vintage simpsons scenes set outside at night and they you know the skies are black it's all these purples and blues and greens and it's it's um, really aesthetically exceptionally pleasing and looking at I've got a just I've just paused the YouTube in front of me and it just look it has a dreamlike quality and maybe it's because it's golden hour um, but I don't really know how golden hour works when you've got that level of floodlighting going on but it just um, has that dreamlike quality to it um, that I'm not sure you Do see that now? anymore Do we get that I, and I don't now? know why you don't get it now because obviously people are playing under floodlights and they're playing maybe, as day turns tonight but it's stunning know. just to look at yeah maybe somebody technical could let us know about colors nowadays when we watch them because i agree i i watched um 
the match a few times and it, the light changes on the red. It looks purple at times. It looks black almost at times. In fact, I had to go and watch it again just to check it was red. The stripe going across the front uh, and the back. It's a clean look too. It's a very clean look that year. Yeah, because I think the court colour changes in 2005 because obviously the final the following year is that Federer and Nadal five-set final. And I feel like, oh gosh, I can't remember. I've seen that match so many times yet I couldn't tell you the colour of the court. But I feel like they change it. They certainly change it in, in, in later um, in later years. Changes. Well, that, that's what the um, edit function on um, okay. GarageBand is for. The, the thing that and I also, most remember from that Feather and Nadal five set final the next year is Nadal's um, gold shirt. Yeah. It was just very. Who wears a gold shirt unless you are that good at tennis? Only you need Nadal. you need to, or, or you really don't give a damn because you're only focused about tennis. I think that's the answer. I think also Federer's clothes, you look at 2004, they're, they're quite loose fitting and they're not Pete Sampras style. They're not that baggy, but there is a looseness that makes Federer look bigger. Um, when he played against Henman, to hark back to the Indian Wales final, Henman just, Federer just looks a lot bigger than Henman. Now maybe he is, but uh, the handshake at the net, uh, maybe it was the big red, the red t-shirt that they were the bold black stripe, but he just looks so much broader. Okay, well, breaking news. Yes. I, I've now got a, um, uh, I paused the YouTube of um, Federer Nadal the following year. It's actually hard to tell because, <laughs> because, uh, because you don't know with, with, not, with filters, not, not, not Instagram filters, but like, you know what um, cameras could do when it was very bright and they'll, they'll add or remove brightness to, to make it easier for the, the viewer. But you could you could convince me either it's a lot greener in two thousand and five, which doesn't surprise me because that's my memory of a very green court, um, and being very frustrated watching Federer shank forehands and backhands left, right, and centre. I'm not sure this is podcast gold because I'm well, trying. I'm, I'm inelegantly describing gone, what something looks like I've that no one else is going to bother. Now. No one else is going to bother to check this, Lisa. So I think I well, think. Well, I'm checking it. I I'm checking. Well, it you don't I count. Can't. I. Well, obviously not, but I'm curious, so that counts for something. Um, I'm checking out Nadal's gold I think, I think sleeveless, when, sleeveless shirt. When I post this, this post the episode on Twitter, I'm gonna obviously I'm gonna have to screenshot both and ask our three and a half followers on Twitter or who follow, <laughs> and you should follow um, uh, at that Federapod to tell me is it is it a different colour? Because um, I feel like we're going to have to crowdsource this information. I think it's just but you can see how different country. it looks. It does look. It does look different. And it's also, and that's why I kind of feel like the 2004 version has that um, dreamlike feel to it. Yeah. We'll find out. Somebody let us know, please. So in in our in um, the email I sent you earlier today, when we just with a with a vague outline of what we're going to talk about, the 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 fifth point was AOB. So any other business, Lisa about Roger Federer, about Davidenko, about tennis oh. in 2004, about you in 2004? Me in 2004. Um, the people want to know more about you. Do they? Well, I, I think I fell into coaching. For anyone that knows me, um, our head pro, a big shout out for Chris Bradnam, um, invited me to, to become a coach and work with him, which was uh, a wonderful learning curve. 
So I did that as a second career and I've been lucky enough to do it for the last 26 years or 27 years. Um, I'm hoping, I'm looking forward to seeing Federer back playing. I'm assuming Wimbledon this year. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing what she's going to wear, obviously. I'm just, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just not there for the Uniqlo. I love well, a Uniqlo work shirt, Uniqlo I, jeans, but I don't, I don't want to get sweaty oh, in Uniqlo. Well, I think this is the, one of my questions, and we hark back to your to your interview recently with um, Andy Murray. Was did that happen? You. Yeah, that did happen. You okay. wrote a very good article. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, it was a very, very good article. I recommend it. Um, and you asked him about his latest uh, venture into sportswear. He's, he's launched his own brand. And I think one of the questions I would have is, why is there no Federer, well, a female Federer, Nike in the back in the day anyway, um, apparel? I think we're missing a trick here. So I, M- Murray wear, is introducing women. And Murray it, is. I mean, it, 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 it feels a bit like an afterthought, given that it's not ready now. Um, and maybe when Federer was with Nike, there was a feeling that we'll get Serena Williams to sell women's clothes. Um, Federer and, can and sell men's do. clothes. And yeah. they do. But... Uh, I think a Federer tracksuit would suit many women and many women would want to wear one, myself included. Well, we're not currently sponsored. So um, anyone out there who would like to sponsor Lisa's legwear, I'm more yeah. than welcome to. That'd be very hard. That'd be great. Well, Lisa, it's been another um, pleasure and privilege um, chatting to you about all things Federer, uh, Davidenko. We probably will at some stage have to discuss Federer playing a player who he doesn't consistently wipe the floor with. But but that, but but not yet. Maybe maybe once COVID is truly gone and we can bear to to deal with more disappointment. Um, but um, I'm certainly going to go back and watch a bit more Federer, Davidenko. Probably that French Open uh, semi final. Uh, from 2007 um, but thank you again for your time thank you um, everyone for listening you can follow us on twitter at that federer pod um, and until uh, until next time thank you very much <laughs> <laughs>